Section 20 of The Spell of Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spell of Egypt by Robert Smythe Hitchens. Chapter 17 Pharaoh's Bed, Part 2. In my youth it made upon me an indelible impression. Through intervening years, filled with many new impressions, many wanderings, many visions of beauty in other lands, that retired painted chamber had not faded from my mind, or, shall I say, from my heart. There had seemed to me within it something that was ineffable, as in a lyric of Shelley's there is something that is ineffable, or in certain pictures of Bokelin, such as the Villa by the Sea. And when at last, almost afraid and hesitating, I came into it once more, I found in it again the strange spell of old enchantment. It seems as if this chamber had been imagined by a poet, who had set it in the centre of the temple of his dreams. It is such a spontaneous chamber that one can scarcely imagine it more than a day and a night in the building. Yet in detail it is lovely, it is finished and strangely mighty, it is a lyric in stone, the most poetical chamber, perhaps, in the whole of Egypt. For Philae I count in Egypt, though really it is in Nubia. One who has not seen Philae may perhaps wonder how a tall chamber of solid stone, containing heavy and soaring columns, can be like a lyric of Shelley's, can be exquisitely spontaneous, and yet hold a something of mystery that makes one tread softly in it, and fear to disturb within it some lovely sleeper of Nubia, some princess of the Nile. He must continue to wonder, to describe this chamber calmly, as I might, for instance, describe the temple of Der, would be simply to destroy it. For things ineffable cannot be fully explained, or not be fully felt by those the twilight of whose dreams is fitted to mingle with their twilight. They who are meant to love with ardor, si passionment pour la passion. And they who are meant to take and to keep the spirit of the dream, whether it be hidden in a poem, or held in the cup of a flower, or enfolded in arms of stone, will surely never miss it, even though they can hear roaring loudly above its elfin voice the cry of directed waters rushing down to upper Egypt. How can one disentangle from their tapestry web the different threads of a spell? And even if one could, if one could hold them up and explain, the cause of the spell is that this comes in contact with this, and that this, which I show you, blends with, fades into this, how could it advantage anyone? Nothing could be made clearer, nothing be really explained. The ineffable is, and must ever remain, something remote and mysterious." And so one may say many things of this painted chamber of Philae, and yet never convey, perhaps never really know, the innermost cause of its charm. In it there is obvious beauty of form, and a seizing beauty of color, beauty of sunlight and shadow, of antique association. This turquoise blue is enchanting, and Isis was worshipped here. What has the one to do with the other? Nothing, and yet how much? For is not each of these facts a thread in the tapestry web of the spell? The eyes see the rapture of this very perfect blue. The imagination hears, as if very far off, 
the solemn chanting of priests, and smells the smoke of strange perfumes, and sees the long, aquiline nose and the thin, haughty lips of the goddess. And the color becomes strange to the eyes, as well as very lovely, because, perhaps, it was there, it almost certainly was there, when, from Constantinople went forth the decree that all Egypt should be Christian, when the priests of the sacred brotherhood of Isis were driven from their temple. Isis nursing Horus gave way to the virgin and the child, but the cycles spin away down the ringing grooves of change. From Egypt has passed away that decreed Christianity. Now from the minaret the muezzin cries, and in palm-shaded villages I hear the loud hymns of earnest pilgrims starting on the journey to Mecca. And ever this painted chamber shelters its mystery of poetry, its mystery of charm. And still its marvelous colors are fresh as in the far-off pagan days, and the opening lotus flowers, and the closed lotus buds, and the palm and the papyrus are on the perfect columns. And their intrinsic loveliness, and their freshness, and their age, and the mysteries they have looked on, all these facts are part of the spell that governs us today. In Edfu one is enclosed in a wonderful austerity, and one can only worship. In Philae one is wrapped in a radiance of color, and one can only dream. For there is coral pink, and there a wonderful green, like the green light that lingers in the west. And there is a blue as deep as the blue of a tropical sea. And there are green-blue and lustrous ardent red. And the odd fantasy in the coloring is not that like the fantasy in the temple of a dream? For those who painted these capitals for the greater glory of Isis did not fear to depart from nature, and to their patient worship a blue palm perhaps seemed a rarely sacred thing. And that palm is part of the spell, and the reliefs upon the walls, and even the Coptic crosses that are cut into the stone. But at the end one can only say that this place is indescribable, and not because it is complex or terrifically grand like Karnak. Go to it on a sunlit morning, or stand in it on late afternoon, and perhaps you will feel that it suggests you, and that it carries you away, out of familiar regions, into a land of dreams, where among hidden ways the soul is lost in magic. Yes, you are gone. To the right, for alas, one cannot live in a dream forever, is a lovely doorway through which one sees the river. Facing it is another doorway, showing a fragment of the poor, vivisected island, some ruined walls, and still another doorway in which, again, is framed the Nile. Many people have cut their names upon the walls of Philae. Once, as I sat there alone, I felt strongly attracted to look upward to a wall, as if some personality, enshrined within the stone, were watching me or calling. I looked and saw written Balzac. Philae is the last temple that one visits before he gives himself to the wildness of the solitudes of Nubia. It stands at the very frontier. As one goes up the Nile, it is like a smiling adieu from the Egypt one is leaving. As one comes down, it is like a smiling welcome. In its delicate charm, I feel something of the charm of the Egyptian character. There are moments, indeed, when I identify Egypt with Philae. 
For in Philae one must dream, and on the Nile too one must dream. And always the dream is happy, and shot through with radiant light, light that is as radiant as the colors in Philae's temple. The pylons of Ptolemy smile at you as you go up or come down the river, and the people of Egypt smile as they enter into your dream. A suavity, too, is theirs. I think of them often as artists, who know their parts in the dream play, who know exactly their function and how to fulfill it rightly. They sing while you are dreaming, but it is an undersong, like the murmur of an eastern river far off from any sea. It never disturbs this music, but it helps you in your dream. And they are softly gay. And in their eyes there is often the gleam of sunshine, for they are the children, but not grown men of the sun. That, indeed, is one of the many strange things in Egypt, the youthfulness of its age, the childlikeness of its almost terrible antiquity. One goes there to look at the oldest things in the world and to feel perpetually young, young as Philae is young, as a lyric of Shelley's is young, as all of our daydreams are young, as the people of Egypt are young. Oh, that Egypt could be kept as it is, even as it is now, that Philae could be preserved even as it is now. The spoilers are there, those blithe modern spirits, so frightfully clever and capable, so industrious, so determined, so unsparing of themselves and of others. Already they are at work benefiting Egypt. Tall chimneys begin to vomit smoke along the Nile. A damnable tram line for little trolleys leads one toward the wonderful colossi of Memnon. Close to Kam Ombos, some soul imbued with romance has had the inspiration to set up a factory, and Philae, is it to go? Is beauty then of no value in the world? Is it always to be the prey of modern progress? Is nothing to be considered sacred, nothing to be left untouched, unsmirched by the grimy fingers of improvement? I suppose nothing. Then let those who still care to dream go now to Philae's painted chamber by the long reaches of the Nile. Go on, if they will, to the giant forms of Abu Simbel among the Nubian sands. And perhaps they will think with me that in some dreams there is a value greater than the value that is entered in any bank-book, and they will say with me, however uselessly, Leave to the world some dreams, some places in which to dream, for if it needs dams to make the grain grow in the stretches of land that were barren, and railways and tram-lines and factory chimneys that vomit black smoke in the face of the sun, surely it also needs painted chambers of Philae and the silence that comes down from Isis. End of section 20